Welcome to the D.A.R.E. podcast, where it is all about helping people overcome anxiety and panic attacks. The D.A.R.E. app has over 1 million downloads and is free to download at DareResponse.com. Now, without further ado, here is the D.A.R.E. podcast. Hey, everybody. Oh, good. Okay, good. I've opened the right webinar this time because there's already 30 people joining. Hi, guys. How are you? Oh, here comes our guest. Let's Hello. Hi there. How are you? Hi, I'm Orion. Nice to meet you. Hi, I'm Michelle. Oh, I changed my name here because all the people are joining in on the webinar. Let me just change this real quick. Uh, Okay, Aida is joining in a second. Um, hi, Orion, nice to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us on the webinar. No, this is lovely. Thanks for reaching out and inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so I we have we'll probably have a couple hundred people joining us in on the um, here comes Aida in on our chat. And so I think you have access to the chat too. Um, where would I have access to so the if chat? you go down to the bottom, you can click the chat button and see. If questions come in, if there's something that catches your eye and it works into your, you know, frequently asked questions or things that you think would be great to be addressed, um, we can answer them here. Guys, if you want to say hi in the chat and where you're calling from. Um, hi, Aida. Hello, Michelle. Hi, Ryan. Nice to meet you. Hi, Aida. Nice okay, to meet so you as well. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for coming. That's really so great. You have been suggested by many of our members to ask you if you would come and join us on our webinar. So it's really great that that happened. Fantastic. Well, I'm, we I'm gotcha. very happy to be here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, and it's interesting because we have covered about every anxiety manifestation there is out there, but I think we have never touched on test anxiety too much, Michelle, right? Not much. I mean, in general, you know, of general anxiety or performance anxiety or anticipatory anxiety, which, I mean, it's all sort of tied in, but that, yeah. here we have the master of test taking. So you are the executive director of it's Stellar GRE, is that right? Stellar GRE, correct. Okay, the founder so, and the director. So mm -hmm. tell us all about you and about your program, about what you do. Sure. Well, I wear kind of two hats. So I am the founder and director of Stellar GRE, which is the Bay Area's only dedicated GRE test prep company. And as far as I know, Stellar GRE is also the only empirically validated GRE test prep system in the world. I'm really big on data. I've collected data on hundreds and hundreds of my students and examined, you know, pre-post how they responded to my system after a course of two months of intervention. And I find that I found that the average improvement was, oh, it was substantial. It was about three to four times what the score guarantee was for my competitors. And all this data wow. is published directly on my website. So I have a, a system that I've evolved organically over the past 19 years. I've been a test prep instructor for, for quite some time. It was my first job out of undergraduate college. Um, and I've worked with thousands and thousands of students, both live and in person, individually and in group classes, to develop this system of strategies and techniques that's totally unique, somewhat counterintuitive. It, it is opposed to a lot of the established wisdom when it comes to test prep, um, but has a great deal of validated success with students. So I do that, and I have done that for quite some time. Um, I'm also a licensed psychologist, which is also probably why you reached out to me. Um, I have been in private practice now for about five years. 
I live in Napa, California, and I see folks virtually out of my home office. Um, now that's mostly what I do. Um, I have the Stellar business. Uh, it was it was hit by by the COVID pandemic because oh, yeah. our, our mm -hmm. courses couldn't be held in San Francisco, but it's starting to come back in a big way this year. And I'm working on an online self-study program based on my system. So there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of interesting and exciting things coming down the pipeline. Mm -hmm. So I've now worked with uh, probably close to several thousand folks on the GRE in particular. And test anxiety is something that almost everybody deals with in some capacity or the other. Mm -hmm. So should I just kind of launch in with this or do you Yeah, have sure. And I'd love to hear all how about because we're all about counterintuitive. We are all things anxiety and we're, it's the same sort of thing. We are kind of the opposite of the general like breathe through it, get rid of calm down sort of approach. And so I'd love to hear calm all of down. your approach. Uh, calm down. Yeah, right. Does that work in your fights with your, with your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Calm like, down. Not yeah, going to work I, I, with yourself. Like, I said that to my husband all the time. Have you ever said, calm down? And I was like, oh, okay. I've calm down now. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. It doesn't quite work. Um, so I guess with the test anxiety, it's important to understand that performative elements play a substantial role in the overall variance of people's scores on standardized tests. There's a really interesting study that was done in the University of California, Santa Barbara, some years ago. And the study was basically randomizing cohorts of undergraduates to two different conditions, one of which received two weeks of mindfulness training, and one of which got two weeks of like healthy living nutrition classes. Um, they did no test prep whatsoever. They didn't mm -hmm. learn skills or memorize vocabulary words, but the measure of interest was the verbal section of the GRE, which they administered to everybody before and after the two-week period. And what they discovered is that the folks who were practicing actively mindfulness, uh, on average, improved their score 19 percentile points in two weeks without wow. learning anything having to do with the test or the test content whatsoever. So I usually say that performative elements like sustained concentration, test anxiety, these things account for anything between 20 to 25% of a student's overall score, um, especially near the top, the ceiling. Usually the difference between folks who are scoring near the ceiling in the 90th percentile and above and in the 80th percentile, the difference between those, those two classes of students generally isn't knowledge. Both of those students are hardworking folks and they've generally put in a lot of effort and they know the Pythagorean theorem and the area of a trapezoid and mm -hmm. what gregarious means and things like that. It's that the 90th percentile student is able to manifest his or her knowledge more consistently, just slightly more consistently than the students at the uh, 80th percentile level. So these performative aspects are extremely important to attend to. And as far as I know, most prep programs do not give it adequate attention, maybe because it's not really in their wheelhouse. It's more psychological. Yeah. And so, and so what do you, do you have information on like what that mindfulness training was for this research um, study you were talking about? Like what exactly kind of type of meditations or focus concentration? activities that they did exercise. I haven't read the study in a, in a while, but yeah. I think, I think the, um, 
the paper said that it was just general mindfulness meditation. So there's lots of different kinds of meditation, mm -hmm. as I'm sure you're aware, and the mindfulness meditation, the non-judgmental awareness, of the present moment. So it's about letting thoughts come and go without attachment and being able to create some distance between, let's say, your observations of reality and your judgments about reality, because it's those thoughts that are likely to contribute to test anxiety, among other things. And I'm sure I'll get into that very shortly in this um, interview. Mm -hmm. You so, guys hear that? It sounds very, very familiar. Very familiar. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that most of what I'll say today isn't, uh, it's it's not groundbreaking in, in, in any way. Maybe I'll put it together in a slightly novel package, but the but things that's that what's I so much say. That's what's so great, because our last guest was about on eating and mindfulness and eating and disordered behaviors attached to eating. And it's it was such a similar conversation again. And, and weirdly enough, this idea of test anxiety and being mindful, it's going to be similar as well, as well as, you know, the way we approach this with dare as well also. So, um, yeah, just to add that in. Well, mindfulness is very hot. And I, mm -hmm. I did my doctoral dissertation on an intersection of mindfulness and reading comprehension on the GRE. So you asked a, a question about like what specific practices or interventions they use in the study, Michelle. I don't know, but I can tell you a little bit about my doctoral dissertation. Oh yeah, sure, definitely. So basically um, I randomized some undergraduate students because they're the guinea pigs of the world to a couple of different <laughs> conditions. Um, one of them was this, uh, I, it's called the attention training technique. I didn't invent it. It comes from a psychologist in Great Britain whose name uh, escapes me at the present moment. I'll, I'm sure I'll remember it. it was a while ago now. Um, but it's a seven minute intervention that you can do with that, uh, in the covertly in the privacy of your own mind that basically uh, helps to strengthen conscious control of the allocation of attention. So basically the students would sit there and I would prepare a, a number of sounds that were kind of more or less going on simultaneously around the room at different cadences and direct them to to pay attention to one versus another. So they have to consciously switch from one to the other while kind of trying their best to block out any other competing sounds. Um, there was also a component where they did simultaneous listening, where they tried to kind of like, instead of focusing, broadening their attention to, to try to count as many different sounds as possible at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this, this can be done naturally. You don't have to have a bunch of you know, sound making machines set up in order to accomplish this technique. It takes six or seven minutes to do. And um, I then evaluated the students on their ability to, well, the variable of interest was the number of mind wandering episodes during a reading comprehension passage, which was measured in a kind of a sneaky covert way. And what we discovered is that just six or seven minutes of mindfulness attention switching was sufficient to significantly reduce the number of mind wandering episodes while reading these boring passages, which obviously significantly improved the students chances of retaining the content and then responding to questions appropriately as a result. And that was published in mindfulness, I think, a few years back, which was which was pretty cool. It's so important. Like, why isn't this taught as like part of right? Like school-based, rather than pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, teach people how to pay attention, or at least how to redirect their attention rather than stop wandering, right? Your mind is wandering because we have a lot of people, focus and attention is always our thing. And all of our people in our chat, this is when I hold up two things. I'm like, 
This is the subject of what I've decided to look at for the next five minutes. And as things pop up and catch my attention, I notice it and I redirect back to what I'm focusing on. And, and it's, it's a great example. What you were describing is a great example of tuning into what you've decided is most important rather than everything grabbing my attention. And then I get kind of pulled and stuck there. There's been some shifts in education. I don't know where you guys are, are located, but there's there's a lot of experimentation being done in California and the Bay Area in particular. The San Francisco School District has quiet time built into public schools a couple of days, a couple of times a day, where students are encouraged to practice uh, mindfulness meditation in particular. Um, so I think it's coming onto the radar. I think it's difficult to to teach because it's so deceptively simple and it can take a life time to master. See, I just sit here and I just listen to my, I just watch my thoughts. It's like, yeah, that's mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm, I mean, kind mm -hmm. of, it is. It's like, <laughs> it's hard to monetize that. It's like, you can teach it in, in three minutes, you know, right. in a slapdash <laughs> manner. Um, and it's, and so many things come up, but it's also, there's an obstacle from the practitioner to be able to verbalize his or her phenomenological experience in such a way that the teacher can help and overcome that. And it's always through mediated through language. And a lot of what we're talking about um, can transcend, let's say verbal or semantic mm -hmm. cognitive structures. So it, it doesn't lend itself well to formalized education. I think that's, that's the number one issue, but it's starting to change. Yeah. We wait for everything. I'm in New York. We wait for California to come over to us. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? It's hard, it's hard to teach. It's boring to do. <laughs> no wonder we're not doing more of it, right? Or how can you animate children to do such a boring exercise? It would be hard. I've tried it so many times with my kid. You know, there's Headspace for kids. Oh yeah. I love Headspace. I'm a big fan. So we tried that, and he's like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> "This is done." And in his school, they do once, once or twice a week, they do have a mindfulness class where they do meditate and they do yoga and stuff like that. So this is the start. But um, I agree with Michelle, it would be fantastic if we would have that kind of knowledge and would take the time to teach our kids how to focus, how to do that, and not just to tell them, do focus. Mm -hmm. right? I think yeah. it's really a big missing part, at least in, I'm, I'm based in Germany, at least here. I mean, it's a nice first step to do the meditation, the yoga stuff, but I don't think it, it cuts it. And it's such an important part because they do have to, to learn and to study for at least 12, 15 years, right? Until they graduate uh, from high school. So it would be important to do that. Anyway, um, going on and on. So what can people do? Or if I would come into your practice, mm -hmm. I have severe test anxiety. What would your advice be? Oh, how would you go about it? What can you, what kind of advice can you give folks? Sure. So usually what I begin by saying is that on probably we have to accept that some level of test anxiety is probably unavoidable. I mean, with this is associated with high stakes testing. People have often studied for months, sometimes even for years. They've spent hundreds, if not thousands of dollars preparing for it. They have their hopes and dreams of the future resting on this for graduate school career advancement. It's, it's going to be very, very difficult for this to be completely uh, enervated of any kind of emotional content. And so we have to first allow and accept that there's going to be some modicum of emotional activation that is present. And we can also learn to tolerate that. Then I would probably try to reframe that, which is that 
from a from a purely like physiological standpoint, if we were to put a body in the scan and take some like blood titers and things like that, we would from the outside be unable to tell whether somebody is feeling anxious or excited because those two emotions are mm-hmm. physiologically identical. And it's really the cognitive component that judges how I'm feeling that determines whether we subjectively experience an emotion as anticipatory or anxious. You're nodding. So you seem to already know that. Yeah. Because, yeah. So anybody who's listening back to this, we don't even really know this guy. You are, you're like preaching dare. And it's like, it's just what we talk, accept and allow. It's, it's your perception of your body's arousal state, right? It's, it's, I, I eat it's to arousal reappraisal, right? My body's in a heightened state and it's my perception and the story about that. If it's hanging on for dear life or if I'm excited, fear and excitement flip sides of the same coin. So, um, so yeah, that's why we're smiling and nodding. It's like, it's like we prepped you for this and we absolutely did not. <laughs> no, and we use, I don't know if you're familiar with, with dear at all, but there is based on four steps so people can memorize it easier or use certain phrases to get into the right mindset when they're facing anxiety and and panic and step three step one is diffuse step two allow and step three is run towards uh, or demand more and we use this step which is equivalent to arousal reappraisal paradoxical intention to demand more of a panic attack instead of trying to calm yourself down and to allow yourself to get excited rather than be afraid of it and when you do that with real commitment, and you must probably you will have to fake it in the beginning, but after a few passes, you will start to believe it and you will be able to let go of the resistance. And then the panic attack feels completely different. It's not this oppressive force that is, is harming you or you think is harming you, but it's rather a neutral energy that you can channel for your benefit. And that feels just like excitement or this jittery feeling when you have too much stimulants and it works absolutely well and i'm a big fan and very passionate about it and i do hope that we do make more more studies on this because i think it's underappreciated well that seems like it could work i mean it it seems based on the canon baird theory of emotion Mm -hmm. Um, most people basically believe that the behavior follows from the emotion. Like I got scared, so I ran away. But what the Canon, uh, I'm sorry, what the, what the James Lang, not the Canon Baird, the James Lang um, theory of emotion says is basically because I'm running away, I'm getting scared. So if we suffer this initial emotional stimulus to turn away from the panic or the fear, and I'm running, my mind is basically saying, well, I must be terrified by whatever it is that I'm running away from. And so it actually increases the subjective experience of that terror to facilitate the behavior that you've already selected. Mm-hmm. So that, that does make sense to me. I'm, I'm not sure if it might be the best strategy while you're on a time standardized test to be like, hey, bring it on, you know, because the clock is ticking and um, you might only get one shot at this. So the, the strategies that might work to diminish panic or anxiety when you're in the privacy of your own home um, they might be different than if you're in a high stakes testing environment. Mm-hmm. So how so? I'd love to hear. Like, to, yeah. how, love how, to would, how would that, what would that look like? Yeah. Well, in the sense that we, we don't have all the time in the world to solve the problem. It's, mm-hmm. 
so if if panic surfaces during the test, we do kind of have to, I usually use football metaphors, we have to spike the ball. Do, do you ladies understand that analogy? No. I mean, I need okay, to so, like throw it on the ground. Well, yeah, we're going to throw it. So in football, you have four chances to move the ball 10 yards forward or else the possession changes. And there's this game clock that's constantly running. And if you don't start the play by the end of the clock, you lose ground. You have to be move, you move backwards. And so there's a strategy that when the clock is running down, that you just kind of hike the ball and spike it so that you you throw away one of your four chances, but you don't move backwards in position. So you're basically losing some of your opportunity to advance, but you're doing it defensively so that you don't move backwards down the field and give up your offensive advantage. So what I'm suggesting is that when, when anxiety or panic presents itself, it's we're gonna have to like take some time to deal with it, which is less than ideal. I mean, spiking the ball is not something that you, you really want to do unless you're the alternative is that you're going to go way backwards down the field, mm -hmm. which is what would happen if you don't address the panic. It will just get bigger and bigger and bigger. I tell students that you can't like white knuckle your way through a four and a half hour test. It's just not right. possible. Right. So yeah. we do have to take time to attend to it. But if you, you spend even five minutes, I mean, five minutes not answering questions on a time standardized test is probably enough to completely destroy most students' chances of achieving a top percentile score. When you have to answer a question every 90 seconds, we're talking about three problems on the quantitative section of the GRE. That's a loss of four or five percentile points right there. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know how long your strategy takes, Ida, to like move Wait. into it. Yeah. Take no time at all because um, the strategy really is an attitude. Right? It's a change in attitude. So when anxiety, when panic, panic comes on, I can either spend my time trying to keep it down. That's on white nothing my way through it. Or I could say, all right, here we go. Let's do this. This energy is actually going to provide me with the mental clarity and the energy that I need to perform well. So let's go. Fantastic. I'm so happy that you're here. That's it. And you can do that in a split second. And it sounds too simple to be true, but somebody in the chat, please tell Orion that this works. <laughs> let's join it. It's not like a 10 minute meditation. Dare is more like an attitude shift of like, Here's this thing. We did this. Any of my dare advanced people here, we did this on the call. This thing popped up, something popped up, whatever, a thought, a feeling, a sensation, and it's present and noticeable. But dare is basically doing this. You know, it catches your attention. You go, oh, yup. And kind of carry on. It's, it's, it's more of like a, here's this thing. I notice it's here. It can be here all day long. That's like that run towards kind of mindset. Like it can be here all day long but I'm taking a test right now. So while the presence of anxiety or whatever, this heightened state is here in my body right now, it's noticed, it's acknowledged. It takes all of a, a mindset shift. Just like you might notice somebody walk in the door, you might look up, give it a nod. That mindset of bring it on, people can walk in and out of the door all day long, but my focus and concentration is on here, is on this test. And then the E of dare is engage and continue to carry on where I've decided to direct my focus and attention. Tom, so, sounds great, you know. Maybe uh, to add to that, I think, or to make it more clear, I think it's so important that when we, when we, when panic comes on, that we kind of separate the physical and mental sensations of, of the panic attack from 
what I'm actually afraid of because in the test, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fail. And now I feel panic. So if I separate this in my mind and say, oh, this is just a thought, but this is actually my energy in motion. My, this energy doesn't necessarily have to do with the thought or that this thought will become a reality. So I'm just gonna leave the thought aside, but use the energy that is already present to excite me and, and to give me the energy that I need to perform well. Well, yeah, and I do make a distinction between anxiety and panic because I, I, I and an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure here because what I discovered is that once panic really fluoresces in a student, it's very, very difficult for him or her to recover from that practically. Mm -hmm. Like uh, having some, having experienced panic attacks myself, um, I, once it gets past a certain point, I feel like it just sort of has to run its course for a while. And when it comes to standardized tests, the experience that students have, it's like a whiteout. It's like a deer in the headlights and all the conscious training that they've accomplished over the last several months, it kind of goes out the window and they revert, they regress back to previously mm -hmm. learned behavior, which is whatever they were doing before the test prep that they right. spent the last few months doing. And they're in kind of survival mode. And that's, that's very, very difficult to recover from. So we, we, really do want to try to nip the progression of anxiety in the bud before it fluoresces into full panic. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so what I, you talked about what I, how I usually approach this Ida just a few moments ago, what I usually say is that, okay, as a psychologist, I've discovered that behind every feeling is a thought. Sometimes the thought is very quick. Sometimes the thought is unconscious, but if we are very mindful the thought is like a spark and it's usually a judgment. And the feeling, if we, if we believe something is true and we focus on it, the emotion will fluoresce in congruence with that belief in that mm -hmm. um, focus. So we have to be very careful about what we believe and what we focus on. Um, and there are certain thoughts that predictably lead to increases in anxiety, test anxiety. There are things like, I can't do this. I'm running out of time, I'm failing, I'm, I'm never gonna get into grad school, mm -hmm. I've wasted all my money, oh, I'm so embarrassed, I'm gonna have to go to all my friends and tell them that I failed again, I'm right. so stupid. I mean, people can get really cruel uh, um, in their own self-talk, right? So most people know the three or four thoughts that predictably lead them to feeling that increase in anxiety. They, they know them, it's, it's more important that they're aware of those thoughts right. as opposed to me. And those thoughts are not their friend. That's what I, I say to them. These thoughts don't, don't knock on the door and ask, hey, do you want to hang out? They kick it down and say, here we are. Let's go. So the, these thoughts, they don't want the best for you in that moment. They're, they're not looking out for your, your best interests when you're taking the test. And, but if, you, if they show up and you give it, if you give these thoughts your belief and, their, and your attention, it will predictably manifest as anxiety. It's inevitable because the emotional response is impersonal. If I believe I'm going to fail and I focus on that, how could I not feel anxious? If you, Michelle, focus and believe that you're going to fail on this high state, you're going to feel anxious. It has nothing to do with us as a person. It, it's the impersonal response to certain mm -hmm. judgments about reality, right? Okay. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, don't mean to interrupt. But when you say believe in a thought, do you make a distinction between having a fleeting thought that says, oh my God, I'm going to fail this, I'm never going to make it, or believing I will fail? 
and I'm surely not going to make it because I think it's slightly different, right? Can, can, you, can you ask the question again, please? Yeah, sorry. So do you make a distinction between just having a fleeting thought yeah. in the situation? What if I fail? Uh-huh. And having a, the belief, a core belief that I will absolutely fail. I think it's the approach well, would be slightly different, right? Well, the, the, there's a there's a maybe a core belief that like I harbor that I'm kind of uh, a luckless, incompetent failure as a person that can make it more likely that I'm going to have these fleeting thoughts like I'm going to fail this test. Obviously, the little uh, spontaneous thoughts or the intermediary beliefs that we experience are related to our core beliefs. Um, and core beliefs are, as you know, they, they're changeable, but they're, it, it takes quite some, some work and some time to, to do that. It's not something we're going to be able to do while the clock is ticking on a test. Going the test. <laughs> so when I say belief, I mean like validation, which is okay. what I usually say is that you don't go into a supermarket and just like knock everything off the shelf right into your cart. <laughs> you take it down. You say, huh, how much fat is in it? How many calories? What's the price? Ooh, I'm going to put that back. Just because something has captured your attention right. doesn't mean you right. have to buy it. You don't right. buy everything at the store. So why do you buy everything that your head tells you? Because these thoughts, they just show up out of the blue. Like mm -hmm. I can think the craziest stuff. It doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. I can think things that are literally impossible to be true. <laughs> <laughs> I can think that I'm a giraffe. It doesn't make me a giraffe. You know what I'm saying? So it's right. like, I am one of those right here too. Yeah. <laughs> so our, 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 our minds, it's, it's helpful to approach the fact that just because I, these are actual separate cognitive acts, the, the consciousness of a, a judgment and the validation that that judgment is an accurate perception of reality. That's what I mean by belief. Right. Okay. So here comes these thoughts that show up. And is this helpful for me right now? Is this even useful? And if it's not useful, if it's not helpful, if it's not productive, we leave them alone, right? Well, that, that's they get definitely acknowledged, true. They get the, two big, the two big filters are, is this true? And is this useful? Yeah. Because there's plenty of things that are true that are not useful. True. And there's even <laughs> things that are not true that are useful, depending on how you see true. Now, clearly we want to stay as far away from things that are false and useless as possible and more towards things that are true and useful. But yeah, some things might have some grounding in fact, but just do not serve your best interests for whatever reason. And you need to stay away from those thoughts often. And why I love this so much, because it's again so similar with, with our approach. Dara doesn't address the thoughts themselves. So what can we do so we can make the thoughts go away or change them in any, any way or form, but it's about my evaluation that my thoughts about my the thoughts about my thoughts how i feel about my feelings so all the meta metacognitions are are what we address and with that that takes care of the rest and i think this is so different from classical cbt or from this model of self regulation oh something something comes up that i don't like or that is distressing and now i need to do something about that directly and I think this is where a lot of people get stuck in all kinds of anxiety manifestations, like whether that be panic, a panic attack comes up, oh my God, what can I do to make this go away? And the more you, you try to make it go away, the worse it gets. And I assume it's the same with test anxiety as well. So the, le the more you're trying to not be anxious or the more you're trying to not have negative or doubtful thoughts, the worse it gets. Would you agree? Well, that's certainly true. And there's a lot of research that suggests that anxiety and depression in particular 
are very heavily loaded with the self focus of attention. And we can mm -hmm. see that the self is very present in all of these anxiety producing thoughts. I can't do this. I'm going to fail. I'm running out of time. I, 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 I. And on some level, when you're taking a standardized test, I tell students, you want to be like transparent to self. You want the ego to be as clear and invisible as possible so that the information can come in in an undistorted way and your behavior can come out in an undistorted way. That's how you reduce careless responding as much as possible. And um, this, this self-focused of attention is um, related to all sorts of clinical syndromes. Metacognition is also really interesting, especially when it comes to anxiety, is um, generally when you're dealing, I mean, I, I've worked with a number of folks who come to me because they're, they're generalized worriers, say. And they know that the worry degrades the quality of their life. It drives them a little nutty. They, they don't like it. They're coming to me to pay me to pay money to me to try to help solve this problem. Um, so, but like they have trouble letting it go. It's kind of strange on the surface to think about. It's like, well, if it's causing so much pain, just, just stop doing it. But I think that in the metacognitions of such individuals, there's still a net positive associated with that behavior of worry. And with, with anxiety and worry, it's generally my worry for all of the pain and suffering it causes me keeps me safer than it otherwise would if it weren't present, which may or may not be true. And so we can examine that to cognitive you know, refutation and things like that. But until the metacognitions about the worry change, they're never going to let go of the worry because it's like it, it would leave them feeling far too vulnerable and um, unprepared for life. So you do have to kind of approach anxiety on, on the clinical picture from a metacognitive perspective. I agree with that. Yeah. And I love Lisa's post in the chat here, um, like how, how to like notice the thought and then you run on the bottom, like noticing versus getting hooked into it. And I, and I think that's where a lot of people get stuck where it's, we all have thoughts and feelings that are maybe noticeable and fluctuations in our body and our brain as things are going on, as they're trying to focus here on whatever here is. And generally like the biggest problem is something gets noticed and then we stay there and we get involved in it and we try and do a lot about it. I have to do something about this so I can get back to this, which just keeps the focus and attention on this. And it's really... <laughs> It's really teaching people how to do less, leave this stuff alone, which is probably which where mindfulness really takes, right? Like really helps because it's by where I'm placing my focus, this is what I'm deeming as important. This is where my importance lies. This is allowed to become unimportant. So even if they're thoughts I don't like, crazy random thoughts, I don't have to like them, but I don't have to stay involved in them, especially when it comes to test tasting, test taking, you only have a certain period of time. And so one of our members, he, he came up with this line that I use on a post, is this time well spent? And even if it takes a half a second to say, well, where's my head right now? Am I actually involved in, in the, the, the question number three? Or am I here trying to be involved in question number three? Or how am I feeling about question number? And it's learning how to come back here, how to be here. So I don't want to, I'm rambling away, but I, I love, I'd love to hear your take You're on that. You're absolutely right. It's just easier, easier said than done for, for most students. But yeah, yes, it, it's, it's simple, but simple doesn't mean that it's easy. Mm -hmm. Simplicity is a skill and simplicity is generally a sign of mastery. Um, I, I do teach students a technique 
to help address these thoughts though. So where were we in the process? So we're aware that there are certain thoughts that are not our friends. They mm -hmm. predictably are related to the fluorescence of anxiety into panic. So we don't have the luxury while the clock is ticking to entertain them, to give them our focus, validation, and attention. So what I usually do is say, okay, we have to, we do have to address them because otherwise we're going to try to just suppress panic mm -hmm. for four hours. And that doesn't work. Nobody yeah. has that measure of, um, of, of suppressive power. Um, so we do want to address them. And because the clock is ticking, we, we could maybe do a more extended mindfulness uh, 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 intervention, like during the break between sections. But if you're in the middle of a section, you, you don't want to do that. So generally, it's a good idea to try to switch the, the, the locus of your attention as quickly and reliably as possible. And the technique that I usually teach students on how to do this is called serial sevens. Have you ladies heard of serial sevens? I don't think so. It's so simple. You might, you might really enjoy this. And it's not, again, something that I came up with. I'm stealing it from the mental status examination that psychiatrists. Oh, okay. Yes. I haven't done one of those now? in a very long time. <laughs> and okay. I worked in inpatient psychiatric hospital. Yeah. And then you probably gave it to, to mm -hmm. some folks. I sure time. did. <laughs> so serial sevens is super, super easy to use. You can use it to, in this instance, when you're talking about mitigating test anxiety, but you can also use it whenever you're dealing with like cravings to use, uh, maybe explosive anger, sadness, any kind of emotion or behavior that you or your clients struggle with, this is, a, um, this is a, an intervention that can be helpful. Because what I found is that if you can just get through, let's say the initial powerful instigation to feel or to act a certain way, that, that initial powerful craving, then it, it's much easier to, to deal with and it often ebbs of its own accord. So anyway, what is serial seven? Serial sevens is you take a random number like 115 and you try to take seven away from that number every second in your oh, head. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And seven is hard because it doesn't really have a discernible pattern for many people. So it's like 115, 108, 101, 94, 86. That's pretty good. 9, 72, 85. I've done that a few times. <laughs> Absolutely so, wouldn't be able to do it that fast. So I, I mean, I'm a math teacher, so it's- Oh, right. Know, <laughs> who are we talking to? <laughs> but it is, it is hard for most people. And I have other techniques if serial sevens is easy. For a certain student, there are, there are other, they can, it can make it really, really hard. And that's actually the whole point of the exercise. It, the point is one, to make it hard and two, to fail at it. So let me explain why that is. So because seven has no discernible pattern for, for folks and subtraction, mental subtraction, three-digit mental subtraction is, is challenging, um, it requires us to use more of our, um, of our cognitive, like, uh, material in order to attend to this exercise. So this works counterintuitively by absorbing more cognitive resources in this task. So there's less, fewer cognitive resources left to worry about the time or to worry about how you're doing. It's like the idea is to take a task and absorb all of your attention into it so that there's nothing left over that could attend to something that isn't taking seven away from this number. Mm -hmm. And because it's so immediate, it doesn't take long to get to that level. It's not like you have to spend minutes warming up and, and investing yourself in the exercise. You can get into it within seconds. And the idea is actually, if it's, if it's easy to speed up the pace, once you get absorbed in the activity, 
because you do want to fail. When you fail and all of your cognitive resources are invested in this exercise, it's kind of like a soft reboot of the attentional mechanism. And it's like, you kind of power down, overloaded. We can't keep track of what's going on anymore. And then after a few seconds, you come back online and whatever you were thinking out before, it ain't gonna be there anymore unless you invite it back at that point. So the serial sevens, if it, you can try it out for yourself to see if it works for you, but it's a way of kind of like cleaning, swiping um, the content of your consciousness within like 30 seconds. And I find that to be the best use of attending to anxiety provoking thoughts while the clock is ticking. Yeah. Because if you can take 30 seconds to get to solve this problem, you, you generally have 30 seconds, but you don't have minutes to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. And this, of course, is something that I would ask students to try out well in advance of the actual exam to try that you can do this with, with things that are going to be challenging for you in your everyday life. See that it works for you. Yeah. And for anybody, all there are dare people in the chat, try not to confuse this with distraction. Mm-hmm. Like, no, no, here's anxiety. Here's the test. And I'm so wrapped up in anxiety. I have to focus on the test. Just focus on the test. Shut up, Michelle. Just focus on the test. It, you can throw in a third piece. And so it, it's kind of almost like a pause slash reboot button where it's, if I'm wrapped up here and I can't quite get back here, this is kind of like the stepping stone to here. And so- well, I think it could be considered distraction technique. I don't, I don't know if distraction is a bad word in, in the DARE um, <laughs> protocol, but I think distraction has a, has a place, especially if it's earlier on in the process. It's like you have a, a child, Aida, so it's like uh, sometimes your kid will probably be playing around and maybe it will fall and skin its knee. It's not seriously hurt. And what do you do? You don't go over to the child and probably enter into the pain and, and say, bring it on. You say like, oh, look, look, oh, look at that. Oh, that, doesn't that clown enter look like into a clown? The pain. You know, and it's like the kid, if you succeed in distracting the child's attention away from the pain, earlier enough in the process, it's a nothing burger. So I, I, I don't think that distraction is always bad. No, like, I don't think so as well. But I think in many cases, or again, the intention behind it is so important. Why am I doing this exercise? So I can help myself refocus. Awesome. It's going to do the trick. It's a great exercise for that. But if I, if my intention is to suppress the anxiety, oh, I don't want to feel this. I don't feel, if I allow this, it's going to overwhelm me. So let's just focus on the numbers and let's count this in my head. Then I, I'm very sure that it's going to be counterproductive, right? Because mm-hmm. the anxiety will not go away because you're not allowing, acknowledging, but redirecting as opposed to following your instinct that tells you, oh, try and figure this out or do something about this feeling because this is not good, right? So you redirect while acknowledging that you have this feeling, but not giving it the importance because it feels like it's very important panic, right? Panic and anxiety come with this urge of do something about it, do something about it. Oh yeah, and you can be sure that whatever the suggestion to do is is just going to make you feel more anxious because it's a behavioral impulse that's arising out of fear and anxiety and what i often tell folks is that emotions are like living things and and like all living things they want to continue to survive they want to continue to keep living and so all the behavioral impulses that arise out of an emotion are designed to keep you feeling that emotion it's like when you're sad you want to isolate in your room and 
shut all the blinds and put it's on Elliot Smith. Mm -hmm. Is that going to make you feel better? No, it's going to make you feel even more depressed. And that's exactly what depression wants. It's like, ha ha ha, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the king of the castle. So we have to be, whenever we're emotionally activated, we should be very cautious about um, relenting to any behavioral impulses that are arising out of that emotional state. There, it's generally not, um, oh, you know, we're not in our wise mind, as, as you might say, as Marshall Linehan might say. Um, and it's helpful to kind of be cautious about relenting to that. So I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. I always tell my clients the hardest part about this is resisting the urges. Resist the urge to reassure, resist the urge to flee, to fight, to do the, the, the wrong thing that will keep you trapped and in the loop. It's so hard, especially because sadness, yes, you feel like you want to withdraw and close the blinds, as you said, but with anxiety and panic, you're so ramped up. I need to do something. And it's so hard in those moments to sit still and say, hold on a second, what is going on? All right, I'm panicking. Can I do something about it? No, it's not important. Is it helpful? No. What is more helpful? Oh, you know what? Let's do this exercise. Let's count down seven from 118. Oh, that is helpful in this moment. Let's do that. But I think I think in all of this, the intention is so, so important. At least this is what we see in our clinical practice and in the DARE community, that people get very, very stuck as soon as they use any kind of technique as a weapon against anxiety and panic, as opposed to using it as a tool to help them regulate the situation or themselves, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, I understand that. Um... We, we need fear. Fear is a, a healthy human response. We wouldn't want to be completely fearless. It, it's such an unpleasant experience, though. So I, I do have sympathy for folks, and I understand why they'd want to get as far away from it as possible. Um, what would Marshall Linehan say in terms of opposite action? If, if the impulse is to run away, the opposite action would be to boldly approach, right? So it's like sometimes we have to do the opposite of what our emotions instigate us to do. And when there is this dis discrepancy between how we're feeling and what we're acting, eventually our feelings tend to collapse on the side of our behavior. Um, so can you say that again, you guys? Listen, well, that was so nicely put. <laughs> uh, not my own idea, but if, it's like if, if, I know, I know. if, if you're abiding in, in a behavior that's antithetical to your feeling, eventually the feeling will collapse in, in line of your behavior, not the other way around. It's like okay. if I'm feeling nervous in a social situation, but I make the decision to go up and, you know, throw my shoulders back and extend my hand and introduce myself to new people. After a few minutes, my unconscious is saying, wait a minute, I thought we were scared, but look at this guy. He's totally working the room. So mm -hmm. I guess let's turn that alarm off because that's clearly not the issue here. So okay. that fear can't live for very long when there is confident action that would, um, uh, you know, right suggest yeah. the opposite. See, confidence follows action. So whether you're scared, you can, right? Choose I mean, behavior. On some level, fake it till you make it, right? Yeah, yeah. definitely. All about it. <laughs> if you're feeling afraid, you're not going to, if you wait until you, you feel different to do something different, you're going to be waiting for a very, very, very long time. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you want to feel different, you have to change what you do and you have to change what you think. And of those two, changing what you do is more important. Yeah, act your way into a new attitude as opposed to waiting to have the attitude and then take take the action. Uh, cool. Sure. A um, couple other things that your folks might enjoy. So uh, breathing, this is an easy one. So shallow chest breath <laughs> is both a sign of anxiety and it also exacerbates anxiety. Mm -hmm. 
So if possible, you want to encourage deep diaphragmatic, like from the belly breathing, and also pace breathing, which is an old yoga hack where the exhale extends longer than the inhale. Um, this activates the parasympathetic nervous system of the body, which is the body's inherent relaxation response. So if you're like taking a test and you practice breathing deeply from the belly and extending your exhales relative to your inhales, it's like you're going to be chiller. And that's really important. I encourage students during their breaks to, to lean back in their chair, close their eyes and do 10 deep belly paced breaths for that reason. Why is this important? Because if you're already on edge going into the test, it's going to take one thing not going your way, some unexpected obstacle and uh, you know, you're going to mm -hmm. lose your stuff. So we want to like increase your baseline cool so that more things actually have to go sideways before you uh, lose your, your cool as it were. When I took the GRE, I got a perfect score on the GRE many, many years ago, but I was about three hours into the test and the screen just went black out of, out of nowhere. Oh, I, at I, the actual screen or your, screen like, on, your head? Yeah. I was in the, I was in a testing center oh, and no. doing a test at a desktop. I was three hours into the test and suddenly without any warning, the screen, the monitor just went black. Like, you know, toggling on and off and I didn't do anything. I'm hitting the keyboard. It's like, oh, what the hell is going on? I got up and talked to the, the proctor. The proctor was on the phone. So I had to wait for several minutes. And I said, oh, I don't know what's going on. The screen just went black. And he said, oh, this happens all the time. And he went back to my cubicle and he said, you, you must have just nudged the cable with your foot, you know, and it came out of the port. So he just like re fidgeted with the, the monitor cable and it came back on. I lost six or seven minutes in the middle of the test. And I could feel myself getting angry at the injustice of the situation and the fear that right. I'm doing so well and so much. And I was like, well, wait a minute. I'm not cooked yet. The clock is still ticking. It's not like I'm out of the game. So mm -hmm. it's like, I just need to, that's not where I want to go right now. And this is just an extra challenge that has been put onto this to test my ability and I can rise to the occasion and overcome it. And I had, of course, a lot of training at that point. So it, it, I, was, I was able to, to kind of rise to the occasion as it were, um, and it worked. And that's when I got my perfect score. So it's like, things are going to go sideways. Things are gonna go wrong, but it's how you choose to respond to them yes. that really um, makes the difference. Absolutely. And the best, again, since we're talking about anxiety, one of the best ways to reduce anxiety overall is to become a master of your material. So we know, we started this talk by saying that some degree of, let's say, activation is inevitable on high stakes testing. Uh, so that's, we can call that a stress. Now, not all stress is bad. I'm sure you've talked about that on one of your programs, right? Mm -hmm. The concept of you stress. Mm -hmm. This is why it's so much fun to watch the playoffs because you have all of these athletes who are at the peak, like they're the best in the world and the pressure is on all of these amazing clutch performances come out of these athletes on the, in these playoff championship games. Whereas you or I, you know, if we were in those situations, the extra pressure would just, we would be crushed. Exactly. So unless you are a master level stress reduces performance, but if you are a master stress actually increases your performance uh, because it kind of like causes that person to focus and to dig deep and to, and to execute. You can harness and use all that energy. Totally. But yeah. you need to be a master in order to do that, or else you're going to be overwhelmed by the experience. It's going to be a distractor as opposed to a, a facilitator. 
That's so interesting. So when you're a master, when you know your stuff well, the anxiety is going to be functional and help you to peak performance. But when you do not master your material and the anxiety comes on, then all the doubt creeps in and all the, all the oh my God, and then what the fuck? Right. <laughs> Here's the energy. Here's the energy. The master is not mastering it. and keeping it away. The master is yeah. kind of like channeling it, being permeable and the kind of like using it to your advantage rather than master wants an battle audience. this and then doing this at the same time master wants an audience master welcomes the opportunity to demonstrate her mastery right mm -hmm. it's like what's the point of being a master if you don't have the opportunity to demonstrate your mastery it's like right. the the test then is an opportunity it's the foil for you to shine mm -hmm. it's not a, it's not something that's standing in your way that you have to overcome it's something that is thank God there's this test because I know I can ace it and it's going to make me look so much better than the competition. And it's going to, right. I, I'm going to use this to further my, my goals. Right. Do you find a lot of people that get really stuck are trying too hard to find the answer, trying too hard. Like we've, I've worked, at least I've worked with a lot of like musicians and concert performers. <laughs> and when you start overthinking your material, rather than you just reminded me of the way you were talking about that of like, like just letting go and let your body play the music. Like all that information is there and all this mindfulness is to sort of like slick this path and make it as easy as possible to get the information that you've already learned out with all of the other distractions without those in the way of, you know, just letting go and let your body play the piano rather than no, trying to hit every note. It's an excellent point. Masters play. And a musical instrument, we call it playing a musical instrument. A sport, we call it playing a sport. It's like there's an element yeah. of, of loose spontaneity and unconscious excellence that characterizes the master of any field. That doesn't mean, however, during rehearsal, during practice, there's not a lot of conscious, intentional repetition and drilling. Mm -hmm. But you do that, you don't do that when, when you're playing. You want to be sort of invisible to self so that your unconscious training can manifest itself without you getting in the way of it. Right. But yeah. for that to happen, you have to learn that stuff so well that it can, on some level, you can't not do it. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the goal of rehearsal. I used to be an actor. I, I lived in New York City for 11 oh, years. Oh, yeah? I <laughs> thought I saw you walking by on the, no. <laughs> My first career. And it's like, without rehearsal, you're screwed. I mean, you have to, be, you have to do it enough times so that when the, the, the curtain doesn't open or the audience isn't responsive or your partner forgets her lines, it's like you, you can just keep going. It, you can't not do it. Right. And until you get to that level, you're not ready for an audience. Right. But once you are, it's like, yes, the audience, we did all this work. We deserve an audience. We need right, to Right, right. Then you just show up and use it rather than practice and check all the boxes and get it all right. It's now I'm here to kind of just, I don't know how I'll say, but like, just play. Just play the piano. I don't know. It's hard to put that into words because it comes more of like a, like you become like one of the people on our group call, he called himself like the conduit of his music. Like he kind of let the music just sort of play through himself, which I would be, I would assume the people who perform well are kind of treat the test taking like that. Like you release and you kind of, it's a better way of letting the information kind of come through you. Oh, sure. Of course, it's easier said than done. What we're talking about is something- it's everybody's called, favorite line. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, what, um, it's what they call in baseball, the yips. Have you, have you ever heard oh, of Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who don't know, um, sometimes batters get into slumps and then they become like self-aware that they're not hitting well. And the more self-aware they become, the less 
successfully they hit. It's like a, right. it's a it's a vicious cycle, and managers call that psychological state of over self consciousness the mm-hmm. yips, and it's very hard to break out of. But the idea is to like to let go of the outcome right. because that person is so focused on getting a hit in order to break his slump. Um, that's actually um, causing him to be too self conscious, too present in the experience mm-hmm. instead of just relying on his unconscious mastery. Right. And so it's about becoming loose and kind of like letting go and forgetting about the hit. It's right. Zen archery. It's like yeah. you hit the target by relinquishing the desire to hit the target. It's, right. it sounds right. crazy, but it's, it's, right. it works. That was a Bob's burgers episode too. Bob just stopped being able to flip burgers and he had like the yips for, yeah. He did for flipping yeah. burgers and that's yeah. his whole job. I mean, yeah. if he can't flip a burger. As I was watching that, I'm like, hold on, this is for dare everybody. Hold on, mommy's got to write this one down. Cause it's like getting back into sync with your life. We tend to get a little bit out of sync and then our, our, our attention gets diverted and now we're tending to multiple things. And it's maybe all of our semantics are slightly different but it's all about coming to, right? Like directing your attention to where the attention needs to be directed and leaving things alone as more of a less is more approach rather than have to do a whole lot of work about all these thoughts and feelings and sensations. It's like, it's more like, no, I really don't have to do anything about that. And doesn't require multiple worksheets and processing. And it requires, no, this is, we're here right now. And especially on a timed thing, like a test, right? When you only oh, have sure. so no much time, time. no, no, uh, no worksheets, <laughs> no, no thought logs. But I really did like what you said. Oh, I'm a master of my field and now I have the chance to prove it which not only is very motivating, but at the same time, it puts responsibility back into your hands because you will absolutely know if you're not a master of your material. Well, that's certainly true. But the, one of the things I say to my students is like, why not assume you're doing everything right until you right. get conflicting evidence to the contrary? You'll, you'll know soon enough whether you, you didn't, you get your score at the end of the test and by then there's nothing you can do about it anyway. But until you have evidence to the contrary, which the, the reality will give you, you're, you're right. right, Ida. Um, but until you get that evidence, assume you're doing it well. Right, right. And that's the whole negativity bias, right? You get a lot of uh, the black and white thinking and all or nothing in the perfectionist mindset and must get it right. And, but it could all go wrong. Well, if it could, it also could not. And so, you know, we tend to focus on the, how bad it could be opposed to, well, if it's not happening here, I, I, I may be getting them all right. Sure. And I don't even know right now. So right That's now right. it's the world of uncertainty. And so we talk about uncertainty all the time. Like we are here imagining there, but we're only focused on the shitty versions of there, but there's all different versions of there. We just tend to be focused on all the things that could go wrong. Yep. Catastrophic thought cascades. Yeah. That's what I call them. And if we're, if we're mindfully aware of those processes, there's like dozens and dozens and dozens of tiny little cognitive events that can fluoresce into the panic attack even though from a subjective experience, it all happens potentially in a second or two. Um, with mindfulness, I think one of the big uses of that practice is it slows the subjective experience of time so that it can, it can kind of dilate these mental events so you can see that it's actually, oh, this thing happens, then this thing happens, then this thing happens. Not just out of the blue, I have a panic attack. Mm-hmm. But that's how I can feel in the beginning. And once you can slow down a subjective experience of time and you see the sequence, the causal sequence of cognitive events, there are almost always interventions that you can use at every link in the chain to disrupt the process before it fluoresces into panic. Right. 
And I hope anybody, if it's, even if you're not taking a test right now, and like, so this is not a regular open Q and A, these are, you know, the Q and A's geared towards this particular topic, but even if it's not, and not taking the, this particular test, the GREs right now, it's, you can use this whole mindset and approach for giving a presentation at work or any sort of performance that you're doing. It, it's, it's all related to the same kind of concept and mindset. This is the action that I'm attending to right now, while all these other complete unuseful thoughts and feelings and sensations may pop up. I'm either going to take them and use them to my advantage, or I'm going to leave them be. I'm going to notice them, give them a nod and leave them be and refocus here. And so refocus, direction, attention, all of that, regardless of what, like this happens to be this particular topic, but you guys see how it kind of comes up time and time again, in whatever topic we, we bring on each month. I talk about a lot of this stuff in my podcast, so I'll make a little pitch for that. Oh, please pitch. Tell us all, because I know we're coming, uh, we're at the top of the hour, but please, we'll put it in the, uh, we'll put it on the, um, on the Facebook pages too, but tell us all your, your website and your podcast and all the other ways Certainly. we can reach so, you. So my tutoring business is Stellar GRE. That one is easy, stellargre.com. Um, that's GRE prep and grad school consulting. My private practice is Orion Taraban PsyD. So like my name is spelled in my credential, um, .com. Uh, that's for private uh, psychotherapy. Um, I have two podcasts. One is a test prep and grad school consulting podcast that I just launched today. It's called GRE. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, It's called GRE Bytes and it's on, you know, all the major platforms. Um, My other podcast, it's a little bit further down the road. It's called Psych Hacks. And um, that publishes short form three to five minute episodes every other day. Um, A lot of topics that are generated from my clinical practice. I talk a lot about anxiety and how to handle panic attacks and mindfulness in these episodes. It has um, at this point, several thousand followers and a few hundred thousand views. So it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a blessing and it's coming along. So please do check that out if you're interested. And I had a wonderful time talking to you two ladies. I would definitely come back and do it again. If you, Oh, I would love you to come back. There's so much more to discuss. I was like, you didn't even get to questions. It's from the, from the, from the peanut gallery. uh, I'm sorry about that, guys. Uh, I'm sure many of you had good questions, and um, maybe we. And you know, we have we have two webinars. we have two webinars each month. One is with a a guest speaker, and the other one, Aida and I usually run an open Q and A. Sometimes we'll bring in a Dare alumni, and we'll go through all the gamuts of anxiety, intrusive thoughts, compulsions, driving anxiety. Um, it's just when we bring in, you know, professional speakers uh, once a month, we we tend to gear all the questions and comments towards that particular topic. A little more cohesive, but um, yes, thank you. And we're gonna post this up, and maybe you'd like to come back and talk about even just school-age children in general and test taking, and maybe tips that you might have, and things that you've seen, and factors that may contribute to, um, you know, improving grades and focus and concentration and decreasing anxiety. It'd be good love to have you. It'd be interesting. Yeah, whatever you ladies want. Oh, sorry. Please go ahead. No, just thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. It was it was lovely and enjoyable talking to you both. And I think it was a good discussion. Mm-hmm. I love a good disagreement. I think it's fantastic. It's stimulating. No, it's cool. Like when you think when, when somebody has a different take on something and you're concerned, you're like, mm, that could work well. I find it at least very, very cool if 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 somebody has a different take on on anxiety and <laughs> 
LinkedIn, all this stuff. So this was very enriching. Thank you so much. And I would love to hear more from you about men's mental health. I know you specialize in yes, that. Yes, this is your specialty, isn't it? That's true, yeah. Mm -hmm. I find that very interesting. And I'm sure that uh, we have, what is the percentage of, of male and female there? Michelle, do you know that? Yeah. It's almost, it's almost half and half, maybe 60, 40, maybe yeah. 60, 40. Yeah. Yeah. As I'm so, sure you know, women far more frequently utilize mental health services than men. Yeah. And I think part of that is because 85% of therapists are, are women and that there are big differences between the way that many men and women communicate. And I'm sure that there are certain topics that women feel more comfortable talking to other women about. And I think the same thing is true for men. Cool. Great. All we'll right. keep the calendar open. We'll give you a call. <laughs> and I'll call you in a few years when my kids get older too, because we'll need your help. <laughs> this was great. So all the best to you both. You too. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Dare Podcast. The Dare app has over 1 million downloads and is helping people all around the world to overcome anxiety and panic attacks. You can download the app for free at dareresponse.com.